13. So if you'll find Luke chapter 13 in your Bibles, um, I want to call out one of those verses that uh, we read just a moment ago. This will be, of course, the verse that is uh, more or less our text verse. And we're going to read just the first part of it, in fact. So notice verse 23. We'll read this. We'll have a word of prayer. Then verse 23 at the beginning of the verse says this, Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? Quite a question, isn't it? Lord, are there few that be saved? So let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll ponder this together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you've done for us, and as we've called attention to already, we thank you for some just some beautiful textbook Indian summer-type weather that we've been enjoying And uh, now as we see the seasons beginning to change a little bit more rapidly, uh, we just thank you for your power in all of these things and pray that you'll give us wisdom and strength as uh, now it's uh, really on our minds to accomplish those things that we need to accomplish while the weather is still halfway decent and to be ready for the winter time. And uh, we know that that, uh, that presents quite a bit of work. And so we pray that you'll just give us wisdom and give us strength Give us the ability to do all those things, whether they're at home or at work or even around the church, so that we can be best suited to respond to those things that you are bringing into our lives in terms of the weather. And then, Lord, we realize you bring other things into our lives, and much of it is personal, and some of it is shared by others, and so we're always glad when we can come to the house of the Lord and and open our hearts to your word, knowing that this may be the very time that you would see fit to grant to us instruction and guidance and wisdom and help and encouragement concerning those matters about which we are seeking your face or about which we feel stumped. And uh, Lord, the special music this morning called attention to faltering, and sometimes we feel that way. And, And so we pray you'll lift us up today as we make every attempt to lift up the name of Jesus. We pray that as he is exalted in our midst, he'll draw all of us to himself. May we be closer to one another as a result of this time that we spent together today. And especially may we be closer to you. Be with those that may be in the back part of the building with other classes or obligations. Give them wisdom in their tasks. Now help us, Father, to open our hearts to your word. And I pray that you'll open my lips so that I may speak forth your praise. And I pray these things now in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Well, of course, we're looking at those questions. We continue getting on to that as we we took some time off last Sunday for a special baby dedication service, but it's time to get back now to, they asked him this, and uh, we're making really good progress with this. Uh, We're in the 20s. You probably don't really count. I do, of course. (laughs) But uh, we're in in the low 20s, I think, somewhere 23, 24 of messages that we've looked at so far in this. And we'll have a few more in Luke and a few in John. And especially when we get to some of the ones like Mark and Luke, what we're doing is we're picking up stragglers. We're picking up um, ones that maybe were not covered or not recorded in uh, the other gospel stories that we've already looked at. And in this particular case, we have another question this morning that just happens to be a part of Luke's record. It's not recorded. This particular interchange and this particular putting together of some of the material that will be a part of the broader context is, uh, is you don't find it precisely that way in any of the other gospel records, even though some of the things that we read about, like the parable of the leaven, the parable of the mustard seed, that is familiar to us, but on a different occasion and in a different context. So the weaving of it together, so to speak, and what we have this morning is sort of unique to Luke, and that's kind of interesting. Um, the, the, the Bible tells us that in the context here that Jesus is going from village to village, 
Um, he's apparently in the Galilee area, and this is an extended trip moving down uh, towards the south to Jerusalem. And as he stops off and uh, visits in different villages and, and, and cities along the way, he teaches and preaches. That's what we're told here in our context. Verse number 22 says, He went through the cities and villages teaching, and then it says, and journeying towards Jerusalem. So it's in the course of this. It's in the course of at a certain place, someone in the crowd happens to have a question that they pose to Jesus. And that question is what we find in the beginning part of verse number 23. Lord, are there few that be saved? Now, I find this really interesting because you notice that if what the person is expecting is a yes or no answer, they don't get it. And uh, old Dr. Bob Jones Sr. used to say, simplicity is truth's most becoming garb. But sometimes the simple answer isn't always the answer the Lord gives. And so if you were just looking for someone to say yes or no, that's not what you get. Because I think in many instances, I really believe it's true here, what the Lord does is, seeing all things and knowing all things, he probes a little bit more deeply than just providing a yes or no answer. Because if you think about it for a moment, if you just gave a yes or no answer to that question, you'd still leave people with a lot of questions, wouldn't you? I mean, it, you know, one way or another, however, in the mind of the questioner, this question comes up and is approached. If they're just told yes, if they're just told no, it's like you're still kind of looking for uh, and <laughs> more information. So the Lord doesn't do the simple yes or no, but what he does do is to provide us teaching because I think he, he understands what the, the underlying context of the question really is. If you think about this, I think all you have to do is put yourself in this particular person's shoes. All you have to do is think up a little bit about how we tend to think today. Do you think sometimes that question comes into your mind, Lord, are there few that be saved? I really think it does. I think that question comes up often to us because I, I think we realize that, that we are uh, in the minority, that uh, most of the people around us are not Christians. Many of them profess, but... Many of them don't even profess, and many of those who profess don't necessarily possess. And so we tend to feel that way, I think, and uh, we tend to grow discouraged sometimes by that because especially if uh, you're attempting to be some kind of a witness, you give tracts to people or you try to, to speak to people about the Lord and you don't always see results from that, 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 that brings this question up. We tend to kind of get discouraged and we kind of think, well, is anybody really being saved? Are there few that be saved? What's really is going on? And I think that's exactly what's going on in this particular context, because if you look at what brackets, there's, there's like bookends to this story. And so in verses 10 through 17 of Luke chapter 13, you have a little story that we didn't read about, but it's what's on the left bookend of this particular section of Scripture. And it's the story, I think you're familiar with this, I'm not going to read all of the verses, but it's the story of a woman who was bound, who was kind of bent over. She couldn't straighten up when she walked. Jesus encountered this woman in the synagogue. And even though Jesus knew, it, it probably would create a little bit of a, a disagreement, a problem with the leader of the synagogue. He healed that woman, and sure enough, it did. The leader of the synagogue spoke up and said, people ought to come and be healed in six days. This is the Sabbath day, inferring that you shouldn't be doing things like this. You shouldn't be doing work on the Sabbath. And in verse number 17, as the story draws to a conclusion, it even uses the word adversary because it says this, And when he had said these, all these things, 
And all his adversaries were ashamed, and the people rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. So on one bookend, we've got kind of an adversarial context. And then on the other end, the right bookend of the story, go to verse 31, which also we did not read, and you'll see the same thing. Different player, but you'll see the same thing. Uh, It says here, the same day there came certain of the Pharisees. Well, they weren't coming to pin medals on Jesus. They were kind of part of the adversarial crowd as well. And if you look at this, what's going on here is they come attempting to intimidate him, probably with the whole idea of getting him to either stop what he's doing in terms of his teaching or get him, getting him to move on and not be there. Look what they say. The same day there came certain of the Pharisees saying unto him, Get thee out and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. Well, you know, I mean, if you were holding a crusade or something like that and and someone told you that about uh, the local gangster or, (laughs) in this particular case, government authority in town, that would be a little chilling, wouldn't it? I mean, it might just sort of put a damper on things. And so um, we won't even take the trouble to see how the Lord responds to this. He certainly does. You're not going to intimidate Jesus, and you certainly aren't going to intimidate God, but there, the devil is a great intimidator, I will promise you that. that. That is often a methodology of Satan. The important thing to see is that on either end of this, you've got kind of unfavorable type people, so it would be kind of natural, I think, for people who were listening to Jesus and who sensed that all around it seems there's this opposition just as it is in our day when we look in our culture and we, and we pick up the news or we turn on the computer and look at the news, we see all around us this opposition, and it's a little discouraging sometimes, and we're tempted to go down the same road that the person who asked this question was going down with, well, kind of the inference is, is hardly anybody's being saved. It's just it's discouraging sometimes. Well, I'm not commenting on the merits of the question or whether or not it's even so, But what I really want to do is to see what the Lord gives for the instruction to that sentiment, because I think that's what he's really doing. He's not giving the yes or no. He senses that there's more to it. I think he senses that even the yes or no wouldn't really answer the question, and so he gives broader teaching. So there are three things that are a part of this that I would like to bring to your attention this morning that I think comprise some of the teaching the Lord gives back to sort of address this sentiment of discouragement that would prompt a question like this. And the first thought is this, many profess, but few possess. I think that's just something we need to realize, that religion in general, Christianity, it was true in the day of Jesus, it's true now, attract a lot of attention. You might not think so, but they certainly do. I mean, all you have to do is really watch the news, and you'll find that that, uh, Things religious tend to attract a lot of attention and a lot of interest many times. Some people, of course, claim they have no interest whatever, but there are all sorts of people who are glad enough to identify with something religious or to even claim some type of religious background or experience. It would be interesting to do this. If you were to canvas this area, how many people do you think, uh, if you took the percentages, how many people do you think would tell you, if you asked them if they, they, they went to a particular church, would name you a church? I'll bet you the majority. How many people do you think actually go to those churches on a regular basis? It's going to be a lesser number, isn't it? 
It certainly is going to be a lesser number. I learned this years ago when I first started out in Huntington, and I, I did that kind of work all the time, and I, I went out and canvassed, and I'd have people tell me, well, and I, I would sort of, uh, I did it in a way that you couldn't really, but I, I would ask them, they would say something like, well, yo, I go to, I go to this is such a church, and sometimes, I, sometimes if I was kind of just trying to get behind the veneer and sense that the veneer was there, I might say something to them like, oh, okay, I know where that church is. Who's the pastor there? And they couldn't tell me. And I didn't keep putting them on the spot. But at that point, I could kind of figure out, okay, yeah, it's just kind of one of those things where people love to tell you that they belong to a certain church, but it was their parents or it was their grandparents or it's Easter or Christmas that they go to church. The way Luke arranges this material, I think it's very possible that the opening verses that we read were not spoken on the exact same occasion as the the occasion when the questioner posed his question. But I think that what we have to consider is, is the Holy Spirit leading Luke to record this material this way, particularly when we know this whole idea about the parable of the leaven and the parable of the mustard seed were told in Matthew chapter 13 on an entirely different occasion and even in a different context where he was talking about the parables of the kingdom. So if that's the case, what do you think they contribute to this whole notion of what we're talking about here? And it's this whole idea that I've just told you that many profess, but few possess. So what do we have? The first story has to do with a man, and in his garden he goes out and he plants a mustard seed. And the Bible makes the comment, and I think most people sort of have this knowledge, that the the mustard seed kind of has its own reputation as being very, very small. It's kind of like banana seeds. If you think about that for a moment, you got this great big banana, and you hardly even see the seeds, and most of the time you just eat the banana and the seeds go along with the process and you never even think about it. Every once in a while, you eat the banana, and a little while later you sense something in your mouth. What's that? You you work it around with your tongue, your finger up there, get it off your tongue. There's a little black speck. Ever had that? That's the banana seed. Pretty small, huh, to get, the, to get the big old banana thing. And that's exactly what you have here. So you have this very small seed, kind of like Christianity in the beginning, very inauspicious, very small beginnings. But then rapidly, it's, it's almost like unnaturally rapid growth. It's, it's more than what you would expect for many, many other things that you really want to grow, wish would grow more quickly. They don't grow quickly. This thing just becomes huge, and it becomes so huge and so substantial that the birds of the air can even come and lodge in the branches of it and be supported. And then you have the second story, and it's a woman. She, she has three measures of meal. She goes and puts some leaven in there, and in short order, and we, we know this to be true from how it all works, baking and bread rising and all that kind of thing. Very shortly, the whole thing is, has become influenced by the leaven and if, if we think about this for a moment, on first blush, we might tend to think, well, this is meant to encourage us. This is kind of meant for us to realize, wow, you know, Christianity st- started out so small, so inauspiciously. You have a mustard seed. You have only three measures of meal. But boy, you just put a pinch of that leaven in. And the first thing you know, everything is influenced by it. You know, there have been days and there have been times when certain modes of um, understanding the prophetic events of Scripture were more in style 
that people actually interpreted these parables to mean that things would just keep getting better and better and better until eventually the world it would be Christianized. But on second blush, not only does that not just quite work out in practice, but you can really discern, I think, a different idea that, that the Lord is trying to convey with these things because the mustard seed grows up and you get this big tree, but it has all of the birds of the air indiscriminately lodging in the branches of it. Now, I don't know what you think is a good bird. That's not what I'm here to talk about this morning, but you, in, you inevitably have some birds that you don't, you don't think are good birds. <laughs> you know, I don't know, when the wintertime comes, you, know, you like to see the cardinals, you like to see the blue jays, all this kind of thing, but even the kind of average birds, we don't think they're bad birds as such unless they go to pecking on something that we don't want them to, to do that to. But there are other birds you just as soon not have show up, right? I mean, who wants crows and ravens? They, they don't have the greatest reputation, right? I mean, they, they're kind of unclean even in the Bible because they, they eat carrion and all that stuff, make a big racket. And so you're not necessarily looking for them to show up. And I bet you, you would really not be happy if you looked out there in your yard and in this fruit tree of yours, you had a buzzard. So there are definitely are birds that we kind of think of having a, a, a not the greatest reputation, but there's equal representation here. The thing holds them all. And it's, it's kind of like Christianity. Yes, it grows. Yes, it has an appeal. Yes, religion has an appeal, but it attracts all kinds of people indiscriminately. They all pose, they all pro, profess, but they don't all possess. And of course, then you look a little bit more deeply and study leaven in the Bible and see that almost consistently leaven was used as a, as a, as a symbol of evil. And so here's this whole thing being leavened, but what are we really leavened with? What, what has happened to Christianity? I mean, are we on the mark today? Are we on target? Exactly like the Bible prescribes, following in the way of the Lord, the, the straight and narrow and all that? Or have we sort of kind of adapted Christianity and sort of made it fit what we think it ought to be? And of course, you know, it's more the latter. So I think this is what the Lord is really trying to get at. Jesus begins speaking on this occasion then, when he finally does, when we know for a fact that he is answering the question, that the words now being spoken are, are addressed to that question, it all seems to confirm what I've just presented to you, the whole idea of these other uh, verses and parables being brought in to kind of work towards making this whole point. Because notice what he says, verse 24, strive to enter in at the straight gate or the, the narrow gate, it's not so wide, for many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able when once the master of the house is risen up and shall shut to the door and then ye begin to stand without and to knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us and he shall say unto them, I know ye not whence ye are. Then ye shall begin to say, we have eaten and drunk. Here's all the people that say, we, yeah, you were in our town. We went, to, um, we went to a dinner at the fire hall where you were. And the Lord says, la-di-da, it's not the same thing as knowing me personally. And it goes on. And they say, well, I, I remember you. You, you came to our town. You, 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 you taught. You preached 
in our streets. You held a crusade here, and I, I was in the audience. And it's as if the Lord says, you know, that's good as far as it goes, but it doesn't go far enough. I, you never came to know me personally. I never knew you. Yes, you had a blushing, passing interest. Yes, you had some kind of a, a profession, maybe even, of, of, of religious identification because it was embarrassing to you not to have that. But as far as really having a genuine heart knowledge and being converted and truly saved, no, that experience never took place in your life. And so it's true, folks, when you really think about it. Jesus, the kingdom of God, the church, whatever, whatever you want to go back and think about it in the days of Jesus, you want to think about the, the concept of the kingdom of God, you want to think about the church today, it attracts all stripes, all kinds of people. I mean, when you just think about some of, the, some of these, um, I, you know, I call them religious charlatans that are out there, and, and how many people that follow them and I hate to get into names, but I'll give you one example. Um, you know, I think of Joel Osteen, and I think how many people are taken by him, how many people think this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm not hearing any real gospel there. I'm hearing a lot of stuff that's not biblical there. And I'm seeing all kinds of people, big crowds being drawn in, and they're, they're sent away with some, some type of emotional high and thinking that they're okay. But they've never really been confronted with the central issue, which is our problem, and that's sin. And how do you ever get someone to the physician until they first understand that they're sick? That preaching just isn't there. Health and wealth are there, but not the preaching of the gospel. There's a story told, and this is, I think, what we hunger after. I, I like this story. I've had similar experiences, but it's a story told about a pastor was in a, in a big rush one day, and I really identify with that because I haven't known too many years of ministry that I haven't been in a big rush and was usually trying to find ways to slow down. But uh, the man went to a store. He, he was actually en route to a, an appointment, a meeting, a visit with someone that he had. And he kept looking at his watch and thinking, you know, I only have so much time. But he looked there and he thought, I, you know, I, I think I've got 10, 15 minutes, just whatever it would take to stop off here at Walmart or wherever the store was and, and, and pick up this item or that item. Well, it doesn't always work out that way, does it? Sometimes you get in there, you see somebody or whatever, you get waylaid. But this time, everything went just like clockwork. He went in the store. He found the couple items that he wanted. He rushed back out to his car. He, he closed the door. He sat down, and he's, he's, he's got his wallet in his hand. He's got the, 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 the lady at the checkout gave him the, the change. He's got the change in his hand. He's, he's getting ready to put the bills in the wallet and be ready to start the car and move on. And all of a sudden, he looks down, and he says... Whoa, they gave me too much money. Oh, he looked at his watch and he said, oh, what am I going to do? Now, well, he could go in right now and get the matter resolved and he's going to be late for his appointment. Or he thought, eh, I could just come back later and take care of it after my appointment. Might miss the girl, but I could, I could do that. Or he thought about the third possibility. He said, well, you know, this kind of stuff happens all the time. Probably they'll never miss it anyway. What's the big deal? Just forget it. And as he kind of debated with himself for a few moments, he thought, no, 
I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going right back in right now. I'll just have to be late to the appointment. So he walked back in. He got in the line with the same cashier. And when he got to the girl, he said to her, he said, uh, I'm sorry to bother you again, but he said, I think you gave me too much change. She said, oh, no, sir. She said, I did that on purpose. She said, you see, I came to your church this past Sunday. I sat on the back row and she said, you preached all about how Christians need to be honest. They need to be genuine. They need to be real. And people need to be honest Christians. So she said, I gave you too much change because I wanted to see if you really meant it. Wow, you know, people are watching. And they're quick to know the difference between just the people who make a lot of loud profession but don't have any real substance. So I think this is a partial answer. This is the first thing that the Lord communicates in response to this whole idea. And the second thing is opportunities are many, but they're not unlimited. We talked about this just a little bit, I think, last Sunday night, and we'll talk about it some more because Jeremiah has some, some great texts that come, come along and continue to deal with this whole idea. But there were many opportunities. I want you to think about this for a moment before we relate it to the text. Just think about what you know of the times. So John the Baptist came along, right? Did he have two or three at his crusades, or did he have a lot of people at his crusades? Oh, he had multitudes. You talk about attracting a lot of attention. John the Baptist had huge throngs of people. Were they all sincere? Well... Not necessarily. In fact, we know of some who weren't sincere because in Matthew chapter 3, it says here, then went out all Jerusalem, then went out unto him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan. So that's a lot of people. And were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance. So John the Baptist attracted huge multitudes of people, but they weren't all sincere. And there were many opportunities, though. That's the point that I'm trying to make. Jesus comes along. There were many opportunities. Or to use the imagery of the passage as we have it here, many invitations were sent out. Jesus talks about a, a, a sitting down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the, in the kingdom. The, the, the figure for the kingdom here is the, is the figure of a meal and being invited to a meal, a feast. And many, many invitations, many, many opportunities were given to people to respond to the message of John, to respond to the message of Jesus. But I have to ask you for a moment, what was that message? Because I've just asked you for a moment to think about what kind of messages we're hearing today. Are they all gospel messages? Are they all true to the scriptures? Are they all calling people to repentance and, and faith in Jesus Christ? Or are they about other things, feel-good things? Well, here's the thing. Consistently, John the Baptist, Jesus, Paul, the gospel, the church... The message of the Bible is always repent and believe the gospel. Always. And repentance is designed to call people to address and confess and admit their sin and their need of a Savior. You can't get someone genuinely saved who doesn't understand why he needs to be saved. 
So I'm going to show you some verses. We'll just sort of let them pile up on top of each other. So when John came along, what did he preach? Matthew 3, 2, saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of God is at hand. When Jesus came along, what did he preach? Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We'll come over to Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. It gives another verse there, there that I especially like to use to summarize the message of Jesus. Mark chapter 1 and verse 15. And saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. When you get out of the gospels and you get into the book of Acts, Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost. This is Peter now. And he's preaching to a, a Jewish audience. What's his message? Acts chapter 2 verse 38 Repent ye therefore and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Call people to repentance. Later in chapter 17 of Acts when Paul was preaching to a Gentile audience his, was his message different because they were Gentiles? No, in fact in, it was different in some ways. Not in this sense. Acts chapter 17 and verse 30 he said in the times of this ignorance God winked at but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. When Paul called the Ephesian elders and was trying to prepare them for the fact that this he would not see them any longer and those things that he had taught them and he tried to, to warn and prepare them for what was ahead, he was telling about what his ministry was. In Acts 20 and verse 21, he says, testifying both to Jews and also to Greeks. So whether to the Jews or to the Gentiles, the same thing. Repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm asking you again this morning, how much preaching like that is out there? Not really a lot. There's a lot of preaching out there. But how many people are calling men and women and boys and girls to understand that we're sinners who need to be saved. That the whole gospel is about Jesus Christ coming because of our sin and because of God's love for sinners. That because of the righteous condemnation for the wages of sin is death. That Jesus died on the cross of Calvary. That if we don't have him as our substitute and as our savior, we're under condemnation, we'll be lost forever but that through a personal relationship with him, by repenting of our sins, by trusting in him as personal savior, we can be born again and become a part of the family of God. Is that what people are preaching? Or is it just, even sometimes in Christian circles, we used to go through tract after tract, looking for ones that either talked about repentance, if they didn't talk about them, did a good job of, of approaching the sin question so that people really understood or is, is the idea to pick green fruit and just get, get somebody to make some kind of profession? Or just, just, uh, just accept Jesus. So not only is it true that there are many people who profess, but few who possess, but it's also true that there are many, many opportunities. Even still in America, there are many, many opportunities. There are many days, but it's not unlimited, is it? In fact, that's exactly what the story bears out. If you go back to this Luke chapter 13, here's what happens. Despite all of these opportunities that were given under John the Baptist, there were obviously people who didn't respond. There were people who didn't come. When they did come, they came on their terms and at their time. Not when the, not when the invitation came. They put it off then. They said, no, we're not interested now. No, we have other things more important to us now. 
all of a sudden when they wised up and realized that perhaps the door might be shut, then they come knocking. Verse 25, you begin to knock and stand without and knock at the door saying, Lord, open unto us and he shall answer and say unto you, I know ye not when ye are. Why do you do that? Because he's inhospitable? No, because he, he discerned that these people really were insincere. That they had other things that had been more important to them. And now the opportunities have run out. They've sinned away their day of grace. It continues to say, Then shall ye begin to say, We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. But I say unto you, I know ye not whence ye are. He wouldn't have said that. He wouldn't have called, said to them, Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. Had he sensed that there was genuine repentance in their hearts. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, verse 28, when he says, Ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and ye yourselves thrust out. You had your opportunities, but they're not unlimited. Sounds like a strange message for us, isn't it? But, you know, beloved, there's actually an application of this to Christian people. I'm not talking about salvation now, because I think once you're genuinely, genuinely saved, you're saved. And you can enjoy that security as a believer. So we're not talking that. We're not going there. I'm simply saying that I think there are many, many occasions when people sit in a church service and the Spirit of God is speaking to them about some spiritual decision or some step or some problem, something they need to get rectified in their life, something they need to do. But they say, not now. It's not convenient now. I have other things now. Maybe in a year or two when I get squared away. I couldn't tell you how many times over the years I've had people say, oh, Pastor, you know, I'm going to be back at church when I get straightened around. I just need to get straightened up. Very few of those people ever got straightened up. And sometimes I think when that happens, God says, okay, how many services have you been in that I've spoken to you about this? I'm just going to stop speaking for a while. I didn't say God said he was going to stop speaking indefinitely. I said, maybe God just decides, fine, I'll give you a couple years till I come around and bring somebody into your life or put you in a situation again where you're feeling that conviction. Then two or three years later, sometimes it's 10 years later, whatever, then he gets our attention. Then we respond. And then what's happening is you're going into that little closet where you pull that cord and that boot kicks you in the behind because you're saying to yourself, all that time I wasted. All that time I wasted. I knew I should have done this, but I wasted all that time. And you can't get it back. So the opportunities are many, and God's patience is great. God's long-suffering is unfathomable, but they are not unlimited. Some people attribute this story to to the Charles Spurgeon that we know, but it was actually his son, Thomas Spurgeon, who talked about he had made a trip on one particular occasion through a, a kind of a, a small, a small kind of an obscure uh, little uh, English church cemetery in the country. Sometimes tombstones and what you see written on them are interesting, even if you don't like to go to graveyards. I mean, that's kind of not so the greatest, but Sometimes it really is interesting when you happen to be there to, to look around at the tombstones and see what you see written. And yeah, many of them are just kind of par for the course kinds of things. But he said this one really caught his attention. It was 
Two lines and three words, that's all. None of the t- typical stuff that you see there, no dates, no nothing like that, just two lines, three words. The first line was one word, and it said, Freddy, with an exclamation point after it. Freddy, as of a, you know, the kind of the diminutive term, although some, some people will use it still later out into life, but Freddy, as of a, a young boy. Freddy, as if his father were calling. Freddy. And on the second line, two simple words. Yes, father. As if the young boy who heard his father's summons said yes. Beloved, you know, that's the way we need to be when God comes knocking and when God comes calling and when God comes speaking. Not excuses, not putting off, not yes later, but yes, Father. If we respond when God is speaking, we don't have to worry about when he will be speaking next. And here's one last thought for our consideration today. Salvation is, this is another part of Jesus' answer to this whole sentiment of, doesn't seem like many people are being saved. Here's something else we have to realize. Salvation is not by merit, but by faith. See, if it was bad already when Jesus said, you're going to look and you're going to see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all, and the prophets all sitting down in the kingdom, but you yourselves thrust out. If that was bad enough, it really got bad with the thing that Jesus said at the very end. Look at verse 29. And he said, they shall come from the east and the west and the north and the south and sit down in the kingdom. And behold, there are last which shall be first and there are first which shall be last. Who are the people from the east, west, south, and north? Well, they're all Gentiles. But see, the Jews didn't think that way. The Jews saw themselves as the privileged people. The Jews saw themselves as the elect. The Jews saw themselves as the children of Abraham. And they tended to look down their long, pious noses very much askance at Gentiles and and considered them to be dogs. We know that that terminology was in use in New Testament times. Considered them just to be dogs, unworthy. They felt that they were meritorious, but the, the Gentiles had no call no call or claim on God. So it, it goes from bad to worse because what Jesus is saying, it isn't just that many of you who expect to make it don't. It's that many who are not expected to make it do. And why is that true? That's true because God loves everyone and hasn't saved the first person yet by merit. Only the merits of his son, not our merit. Do you know that that's why you and I are here today? We're part of that, that have come from the east and the west and the north and the south. And why is it true? It's true because you and I are not the natural branches. We're the wild branches grafted in against nature. You and I are not the actual descendants lineally from Abraham. We are not. We don't have that. We're among the stones that God raised up as children to Abraham. We're like strangers from the 
promises and the covenants of Israel, and yet we partake right alongside with them on equal footing. Why is that? That's because God loves everyone and never saves anyone by their own merit. He always saves by grace through faith. Was that true of Abraham? It was true even of Abraham. Long before he had circumcision, Genesis 15, 6 says that he believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And Paul fastens onto this when he's making his, his uh, presentation in the book of Romans about the gospel and about justification by faith. And this is exactly what he says. When you get to Romans chapter 4 and verse 2, he says, For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh not, but now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. See, there are two totally different concepts. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. The story I've always enjoyed concerning a man by the name of Henry Morehouse, he was an English evangelist in the 1800s, that, that, that time when it just seemed like God raised up so many choice servants. And actually, Morehouse made a number of trips to America also to preach. And so on one of those trips, he was passing through kind of the poorer sections of a city when he spied a little boy who had come out of a store, and the boy had a pitcher, and in the pitcher was milk. And somehow the boy was a, was a little boy. And somehow when the boy came out with the pitcher of milk, he, he, his foot caught wrong or something, and he, he went tumbling down and hit, and the, the glass pitcher just struck the sidewalk and shattered, and the milk went everywhere. Well, Morehouse saw this happen. He rushed up to the boy to see if the boy was all right. The boy said he was all right, but he was obviously just greatly in great consternation and, and was crying. Morehouse tried to console him. He said, well, why don't we see if we can put this back together? And you know how far that got. Not very far. They couldn't put the picture back together. It was just ruined. The boy kept crying, and he said, my mama will whip me. And finally, Morehouse said, just come along, and he got the lad. And they went to a different store, and he bought a new pitcher. And then he took the lad and the pitcher and went back to the dairy store and had them wash the new pitcher and then fill it again with milk. And he said, now come on. And he carried both the boy and the pitcher to where his home was, set him down on his front porch. And then he asked him this question. He says, now will your mama whip you? And the boy said, oh, no, sir. He said, because this pitcher is a whole lot better than the one that we had before. Aren't you glad that that's the way God is? Aren't you glad that God doesn't just walk through the wealthier parts of town? Aren't you glad that God walks through the poorer sections and finds the needy and the downtrodden and the outcast, people from the east and the west and the north and the south? God is no discriminator. God loves all people, and God saves all people on the basis of his mercy and his grace when we believe in his Son. We often feel alone. It's true. Christians are the minority here in a different place. Jesus did say many are called, but few are chosen. 
In 1 Corinthians 1.26, Paul did say, you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise, not many noble, not many mighty, not many wise after the flesh. He did say that. But I want to show you something that maybe you haven't noticed before. I just want to read this verse to balance those because there's a point. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9, when John is given a vision of what heaven is like, and this is a tribulation scene, but nevertheless, the truth of it holds. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9, it says, After this I beheld, this is what he showed him. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds, And peoples and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. I didn't say it, God did. A multitude which John couldn't number. We may be surprised. We may be surprised when we get to heaven having walk these old weary roads in this world, roads in which we felt like we were the minority, roads in which we felt like we knocked on door after door after door to find the vast majority of people uninterested or even hostile. We may be surprised when we get to heaven and find all kinds of people there, people you would have never thought. And some you thought, not there that you thought were going to be there. I think the best conclusion that we can possibly come to about all of this is is that we may may underestimate, or we should not underestimate God's grace, but at the same point, neither should we frustrate it. That if God is speaking, we have to understand that's a product of his grace. Anytime God is speaking, it shows his love. It shows he's still there. It shows he's still wanting us to respond and we want to be careful that we don't frustrate that because there are in fact many who profess and few who possess there are many opportunities but they are not unlimited and salvation isn't by merit which so many people seem to think it is and why so many people think they're going to be there but rather by faith I will give you one conclusion or or concluding comment that was written by Charles Spurgeon, the one that we think about more often. And this actually is exactly on this text of Scripture that we're talking about today and is found in his devotional Bible. And I think he says it well to conclude what I've just said as well. He takes the question, Lord, are there few that be saved? And here's what he writes. A question which has been asked many times since. If a book could be published by authority detailing the number of the saved, many would hasten to listen to it. It would be far more wise to ask, shall I be saved? We may get a clear answer to that personal inquiry, but upon the larger question, we are not yet in possession of more than clouded light. If I but if but three persons are to be saved, why should not I be one of them? Was a sensible remark we once heard from an earnest speaker. 
that's a pretty good balance. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.